God has a vision for this world. God has not written off this world. He's not discounted this world. He loves this world. He is restoring this world, redeeming this world. He's saving this world. And he's got a vision behind what he's doing. And that vision involves loving everyone. Everyone is loved. Steve talked about that last week. A vision where everyone has enough. There is no one who is without. And a vision that everyone is free. This is God's vision for this world that he so loves. And the encouragement through this Count Me In season is that we would have the same vision that God has and then do our part to see this become a reality. Now, you have this kind of vision emerge and some people might roll their eyes. Wait a minute. Are you telling me the vision is everybody on earth is loved? Everyone on earth has enough and everyone on earth is free. That's ridiculous. It can't happen. I've had that conversation so many times. It can't happen. Well, it can happen, and it will happen, and it is happening. That's the cool part. It is happening. The world is improving in every single one of these ways, exponentially better every single decade. We are going after people who are alone. Globally, this isn't just a Western thing. It's not just an America thing. This is globally. Nations, people are coming to the awareness that, that there cannot be loneliness in this world. There cannot be poverty in this world. There cannot be oppression in this world. The world is waking up to what God has been saying for 3,000 years. It's awesome. It's a great time to be alive and a great time to get involved in this kind of stuff. Now, where does this come from biblically? Well, it comes from uh, particularly the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is God's salvation book. If you want a definition of salvation in the Old Testament, you read Isaiah. You want a definition of salvation in the New Testament, you know, read Romans. But Isaiah has this incredible vision of what God wants to see in this earth. Isaiah 49, 8. Listen to God's heart here. Restore the land and reassign its desolate inheritance and say to the captives, come out and to those who are in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. What does that verse say? That passage is saying, one day everyone will be loved. No one will feel abandoned. No one will feel the desolation of the earth. Everyone will have enough. Isaiah 49 says everyone will be fed. Everyone will have water. Everyone will be sheltered and clothed. The sun will not beat down on them. And that everyone will be free. Isaiah 49 says tell the captives, come out, live free. This is God's vision of salvation. Everyone loved, everyone has enough, and everyone is free. Now last week, Steve spoke incredibly about the vision that everyone has loved. If you missed that, you got to check it out online. This week, we're going to talk about God's focus on the poor. God's focus on the poor, the vision that everyone has enough. Now, as we talk about poverty, I have to begin with a confession. I've never been poor a day in my life. I've never been poor a day in my life. I've never wondered where the next meal would come from. I've never wondered, are the lights going to be on today? Are we going to have running water? I've never wondered whether or not we are going to have shelter. And the reason I've never lived a day of poverty in my life is because my parents, I think they're back there, worked very, very hard to make sure that my brother and I were fed, 
that we had clothes, that we had a roof over our head, and that we got to do normal kid stuff growing up. We got to do a lot of cool stuff growing up. Now, at the time, we were complaining because we lived in Temecula when the dinosaurs roamed the earth, and it was just a dairy, you know, dairy farm land, and, and, and it wasn't a big city. And so we always complain, there's nothing to do in Temecula as we're riding our bikes all over town, as we have motorcycles, driving on the land that you now live on. You took my motorcycle land. And, and we'd be riding horses. And, and I mean, we had a lot of stuff and a lot of cool experiences. In fact, this campus was our favorite horse racing campus. It was just flat oat field. And so right here in this spot, I'm cruising down the horse, racing a horse, going, there's nothing to do in Temecula. Get off the horse, go ride motorcycle. I mean... Why? Because my parents worked very hard. Now, they weren't wealthy. They weren't the top of their company, you know, executives. They were hardworking people that made sure we didn't live a day of our lives in poverty. We went to school, Temecula Elementary, and um, there wasn't a lot of poverty in the area, but there was some. And there was one person in particular named Eric, and I will always remember Eric. He was the poor kid at our school who was uniquely poor. He wore the same clothes every day, tattered shoes, same jeans. I could see his face from 40 years ago blazing in my head. Same shirt, same jeans, same tattered shoes, worn day after day and never getting washed. And he smelled like he was never getting washed. And he was made fun of brutally every day, all day. And I could still see Eric sitting every recess and every lunch right next to the brick building on the concrete by himself, every recess, every lunch, every day, year after year after year, because he was poor. And one season of his life is, is particularly emblazoned in my mind, which is when he broke his arm. Now, breaking bones uh, back in the dark ages here in Temecula wasn't entirely unusual. You have a lot of uh, latchkey kids raising themselves around here with motorcycles and horses and doing all kinds of ridiculous things. And so bones were breaking all over the place here. And, and so he would show up with a broken bone. wasn't entirely uncommon. But what was different is that nobody would sign his cast. You know the deal. You got a broken bone in school. You're kind of the cool kid for a while. How'd you break your bone? Well, you can't. You come up with this cool story that you totally exaggerate. That's how I broke my bone. Ooh, let me sign your cool cast, and, and you're kind of the cool kid for a while. You got the broken bone. Nobody would sign Eric's cast. That cast was blank from the time he got it to the time it was taken off. That was Eric. Now, my heart broke for Eric. I hated just watching what was happening to Eric. And I made the only commitment I thought I could muster up at the time, and that is I wouldn't pile on. I wouldn't be the guy abusing, taunting Eric. I didn't do anything to befriend him. I didn't hang out with him. I didn't offer him any clothes. I didn't come to my parents saying, hey, there's this poor kid. He's about my height or so. Let's see if we can gather some clothes and find a discreet and respectful and dignified way to give him some clothes. I didn't do any of that stuff. And I remember distinctly why I didn't do any of that stuff. And I want to share it with you because I think this is the reason why still today as adults, we oftentimes don't do much tangibly to help people in need. This is what I went through as an elementary schoolboy. I had my own fragile world to keep going. So doing something tangible for Eric wouldn't fit. I wasn't the most popular kid in school. I wasn't very secure about sort of my own standing at school, right? 
And, uh, and so I had my own fragile world to, to sort of keep together. And because I wasn't confident about that, um, I didn't want to do anything that would break my fragile world. Because I thought if I talked to Eric, I was going to be made fun of. If I had recess next to Eric or lunch next to Eric, I was going to be ostracized. I would be called the same names, right? And so I did nothing. Now, I don't beat myself up a lot over that because I was in elementary school. Right? I give myself a little bit of a break. But it did sear something in my own soul that, that something's got to get better with how poor people are treated. People who have very oftentimes don't know how to treat people who have not. And, and, and when it comes to poverty issues, it becomes political in about three seconds. And especially in this ridiculously polarized political environment, poor people become poor issues and poverty issues. And so instead of taking care of people with the dignity that, that God has designed them for, we have political fights about poverty and politics. And it doesn't do anybody any good. Now, policy and politics has a place in this world, but not really here. When it comes to, to the cause of Christ, it's simply about looking at what Jesus did and doing that. What was the heart of Christ? That's going to be our, our heart. What did he say about poverty? That's what we're going to say. What did he do about poverty? That's what we are going to do. Politics aside, pick your party, fine. Vote your party, fine. Adopt the policy about poverty, fine. But we're talking about the cause of Christ, and we look only to Jesus on this, right? And so as I grew up a little bit, got into high school, and uh, my parents, again, by their sacrifice, extreme sacrifice, um, they got me into a local um, private school because there was no public school in town. And, and so I went to this private school where there was no poverty. I was probably the poorest kid in that school, right? Um, and I was doing just fine. I didn't know poverty in high school. And by the way, just a little sidebar, it's one of the reasons why Rancho Christian has kids under the poverty line as a matter of policy is because we want to see that integration in that heart and we want Rancho to be a school for everybody. A lot of that is based on my experience. And, 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 and this kind of bubble is not just for school. We almost have a communal bubble here. The way most cities are planned, and Temecula is no different, is you have the, the well-off places in their well-off communities, and you have the middle-class places in middle-class communities, and you have the poor place over there. That's just kind of normal. Not right, not wrong, just normal. And so we can live in our own bubble, the same bubble that I lived in in high school. We can live in our own communities, and we can drive our routes around town that never come across poverty by design. Now, in high school, I started getting involved here at Rancho um, Christians, or Rancho, uh, uh, what is this? Rancho Community Church, our youth group. And we would take day trips down to Mexico, and you get to see things that are just, just horrible, horrible poverty, kind of the worst of the third world poverty as you're feeding kids in dumps and washing the lice out of hair and, and things like that. You get to experience it for a day, and then you come back home. And the emotional impact of that is, is pretty, pretty small, and it's brief. Uh, today, it's called poverty tourism, and that's something to really take seriously. You know, we go down and we do something good, and it is good, and it is for a day or a few days, and and you come back and you kind of pat yourself on the back. You know, we did something good, and you did. But it doesn't really solve the poverty issue the way God envisions poverty to be solved. I, I didn't really start um, a journey of, 
of a heart alignment with God about poverty until I became a youth pastor here at Rancho. So I'm in my 20s now, and our youth group kind of blew up. Our youth group became the, the youth group of, of the city. And it was very cool, it was very fun, but the result of that was that everybody came to Rancho's youth group. And so you had the rich, you had the poor, and they just flocked. And so it, it was this beautiful interweaving of rich and poor. And so now I get, I get to personally invest my life in poor kids and poor families here in town. And that's when you get to know the story, you get to know the backstory, you get to know sort of the generational stuff. You get to know the systemic stuff that just kind of keeps generation after generation locked in poverty. And we still see that today. There's, there's poor kids that we know here at Rancho and in the community, and they are, no matter how hard they try to get out, there's this systemic locking of people in poverty because of policies, because of habits, because of culture. There's just things that lock people in, and you get to know that, and your heart breaks for those issues. And then you get to build relationships, and then you get to build friendships, and you realize it's not this condescending relationship where those that have are just kind of doling out condescendingly to those who have not. That kind of condescension does not elevate people to the dignity that they deserve, right? So it's when you build relationships with people that don't have, you then kind of write things and you say, this is a mutual relationship. It's a symbiotic relationship. It's not me giving to you condescendingly, lifting you up. It's about building a friendship. And yes, there might be some help along the way because we're friends, but there's going to be a partnership in life where we can teach you some things, but boy, we have a lot to learn. We have so much to learn from people who have not. They have a depth of life and experience and a compassion in them that we cannot have if we've never lived a day of, of our life poor. So it becomes a friendship, it becomes mutual, it becomes this incredible walk forward. And we see that in God's word. We read Isaiah 49, this is God's heart, that everyone will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst. They'll be sheltered. The desert heat will not be down upon them. He who has compassion on them, God himself, will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. In other words, they will thrive. This is God's heart for the poor. Not that they're just handed stuff, but they thrive. Everyone loved, everyone has enough, everyone free. But there's something more. And I guarantee you, a lot of you are not gonna like this next slide. I didn't like it when I first saw it. Here's the reality. God actually prefers the poor. God actually prefers the poor. The first time I was faced with that concept was probably a couple of decades ago. I don't know if I read it or heard it. God prefers the poor. My first reaction was, that doesn't sound right. I'm not poor, God doesn't prefer me, and why would he prefer the poor? Why would God prefer one over the other? And then I got to think about that more, and then I got to read God's word, and that's one of the inconvenient things about God's word. <laughs> Some things are in there that you just don't wanna hear, but it is in there. I mean, it's in there big. God actually prefers the poor. I'm gonna give you three of probably 300 passages I could have pulled out, Psalm 12. Because the poor are plundered and the needy groan, God says, I will arise. I will protect them from those who malign them. God says, I will actually come against some people to prefer others. Matthew 19, famously, Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus speaks here in hyperbole. You can't understand the teaching of Jesus unless you understand the art of exaggeration, right? Um, he's not saying it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom. But Jesus says, poor, wide as can possibly be, come, go, because 
You understand need. You understand the need for God. You understand the need for just sustenance. You understand what it's like to, to have not, and then you come to God, and it's just this incredible embrace of God and his goodness and grace. Come right on in. The rich don't need anything, right? At least that's how a lot of people who have lived their lives. I don't need anything. I got it all figured out. I got my job, got my security, got my retirement, got my assets, I got my equity, I got, I got it, right? Jesus gives preference for those who are poor. How about James, the brother of Jesus? Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? There's a special place in God's heart for the poor. They are the rich ones in faith, and they are the ones come right on and inherit this kingdom I've prepared for you. Now, I had my little moment of tweak. God prefers the poor. That means he prefers the poor over me. And after thinking about it for five minutes and reading some scriptures, I realized, well, of course he does. And why wouldn't he? I mean, I've got, I've got stuff. I've got food. I've got water. I've got shelter. I've got clothes. I've got my motorcycle. I've got my horse. <laughs> you know, I've got it. Of course God's going to prefer the one who's struggling every day uh, about what to eat in some parts of the world with disease and lack of clean water, of course God's going to prefer them. There's just this freedom. It was a freedom that almost was like a light switch. Got into God's word a little bit on it. Of course God prefers the poor. Why wouldn't he? I have to get all bad out of shape that God doesn't prefer me. <laughs> okay, I've, I'm fine. They're not. To not only come to the point where, of course, God prefers the poor, but to come to the point in our lives and in our soul that says, I will prefer the poor. I'm going to live my life preferring the poor. They're not an issue out there. They're not the irresponsible out there. And this is how the evangelical church carries itself a lot. We carry ourselves with this, you know, kind of the poor as being an issue or the poor are some policy, you know, problems. Or we can have these old school assumptions about the poor. Oh, well, they just need to fill in the blank. If we can get to the point and really the point of freedom, which says, of course, God prefers the poor, and I will prefer, prefer the poor. I will reach out and build bridges and befriend, and, and I will learn from them in humility. I will learn from them. They have so much to teach me. What can you teach me? Now, we're looking at God's word, and, and, and God's word is very clear that Israel initially was given the assignment of preferring the poor. Israel was given that assignment to prefer the poor. We read a scripture specifically giving the heart of God and the vision of God for the poor given to Israel. Israel as a nation, the ones first called to God's goodness and grace. They were given the job description, go prefer the poor, right? Go, go out there and make sure everyone has enough. Make sure everyone is loved. Make sure everyone is free. But they didn't do it. Just quickly, the nation of Israel did what every nation tends to do. The poor were denied justice, and there's passages, there's verses all through this. You can read your notes in new version if you've got them. High interest rate loans were given to the poor specifically to take their land when they couldn't make payments. Business practices defrauded the poor. Employers denying workers acceptable pay. Citizens refusing to give generously to support the needy. The wealthy using their privilege to take advantage of the poor. Israel did what essentially every nation tends to do regarding the poor. And God says, enough with you and sets Israel aside. Still loves them. Romans chapter two, very clearly, there's a benefit to being among the, the, the tribes of Israel. They first received the word of God, but God says, I can't work through this blood nation 
to do what I want to do. Set them aside. But from among Israel comes one who would reestablish God's heart for the poor. Take a guess who that person is. There you go. Okay, first service it was a little, little weak on that. Second service got it kind of together. You're, you're doing great. <laughs> Jesus came from among Israel to reestablish God's heart for the poor. Jesus spent his life defending and lifting up the poor. We just spent 13, 14 weeks talking about the life of Christ, lifting up, defending the poor. Here's what Jesus did, short list. Jesus goes after people who exploit the resources of the poor for their own benefit. Jesus condemns religious leaders who are stealing from the poor. Jesus expresses outrage for those who cold-heartedly ignore their obligation to give generously to the poor. Jesus confronts those overly concerned with accumulating wealth for themselves. Jesus celebrates the shrewd use of money. Jesus is totally good with business. He's totally good with making money. God is totally good with earning money, even a lot of money, and enjoying those resources, but not at the expense of generosity. He celebrates the shrewd use of money to give generously to help the poor, and Jesus lived his life in service to the poor. And during one very famous incident, Jesus establishes for all of us God's heart for the poor. You might recall this instant, uh, this instance. It's um, detailed throughout God's word and throughout the gospel. Uh, John chapter 2, uh, late in Matthew, Mark and Luke, actually. The, um, the destruction of the temple, the overturning of the money changers at the temple. It's, it's during a feast. Hundreds of thousands of people from all over the world are in the temple courtyard. This is the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Israel. In the courtyard, everybody was welcome. Men, women, Jews, Gentiles, all nations, tribes, tongues are welcome in the courtyard. And it was customary to give an offering to the God of a certain country. And so hundreds of thousands of people are in this courtyard. And Jesus notices something taking place that disgusted him. And many of you know what historians have put together here. You have the selling of animals or the bringing of animals for sacrifice to the God of Israel. Rich people would bring in bulls, poor people would bring in doves. A poor family would bring in a dove for sacrifice. The priests, in the name of God, would say, that is a blemished dove. God cannot accept the blemished dove. We have to seize that from you, and we're going to sell you an unblemished dove for three to six times the normal cost of a dove. This is crushing for a poor family. They would then take that dove around back. A priest would bless that dove, and then they would sell that dove. Sorry, they would sell that dove to the next family. And they would do this time and time and time again, totally corrupt, completely taking advantage of the poor, stealing from the poor. What did Jesus do? Got a little upset. He makes a whip out of cords, drove them from the temple courts. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and screamed, stop turning my father's house into a den of thieves. This is a, a very famous passage and it should break all of our hearts that there were people using the name of God in the house of God to steal, particularly from the poor, for their own benefit. Now, that kind of thievery is utterly disgusting. Thankfully, it doesn't happen very much in this world. It happens a little bit, but not a lot. But there's a more subtle thievery that takes place regarding the poor. And that is when we fail to prioritize helping the poor Scripture says is a form of thievery. When we fail to prioritize help to the poor, it's a form of thievery. Now, I'm going to blast through a whole bunch of stuff, and it's going to go quick. 
25% of Christian households give nothing away. Now, I'm sure there are many households that give nothing away where they're struggling. They're struggling for food. They're struggling to keep the water on. I get that. But I think there's some families in here that just choose not to prioritize generosity. This is throughout the church. I'm not talking about Rancho at all here. 36% of Christians give away less than 2% of their income. Now, I don't believe in the Bible. There's some hard number. I think 10% is sort of a biblical model. It's not a biblical mandate. People are, are asked to give cheerfully, generously as they're able, right? But 2%, I don't know, I'll let you decide whether you think that's a lot or a little. The mean giving per Christian household is $200 a year. In other words, Christian, enough, more, as many people give $200 or, or less a year then give $200 or more a year uh, away. 5% of Christians give 60% of the donations. And of the very generous givers, we're not talking about wealthy, we're just talking about generous givers, they are becoming fewer and fewer, literally dying off. And so Christian generosity is literally dying. Christians under the poverty line give twice the percentage of income away compared to middle-class Christians. Did you get that? Christians under the poverty line give two times more of their money away by percentage than middle-class Christians. Middle-class Christians give the least amount of money away of any demographic in America. Wealthy Christians give only 1% more of their income away than those under the poverty line. You look at some of these things, and you, there's just some questions that emerge, and I'm not talking about out here. I'm talking about in here with all of us. There's some questions that emerge. Why is this? Why is there a lack of generosity? Well, there's a couple of ideas. One is that the middle class is just saddled with debt. Why is there such this hole with middle class generosity? Well, especially in California, if you buy a house and, and buy a car, if you have a mortgage and a car payment, and you're sunk for 20 years. I mean, that's just the way it goes. You have kids, there's no hope in life <laughs> financially. We're living that life. <laughs> through in college. God bless America. <laughs> Middle class is just saddled with debt, and so there's very little margin for anything else. To add to that, the fixed cost for middle-class households is 75% of the income. Three decades ago, that was 58% of the income was fixed. Utilities, mortgages, taxes, that kind of stuff. Now it's 75%. Families are just crushed. So it's understandable. The middle class also overspends. Middle class spends $106 for every $100 earned. Yeah, you got to keep up, right? I mean, you got to have the house that you can afford plus, the car you can afford plus. Your kids have to be involved in 17 things or they're going to whine. You just got to do it. I understand this. We've had years in our own family where this was the case. And we have to control all, delete the Treadway house. All right. There's another reason why generosity is lacking in the church, and that is the fault of the church. It's very often the church's fault that church members don't give very generously. And here's what I mean by that. Of course, you have the stereotypical televangelists and health, wealth, prosperity clowns out there. These are clowns. They're out there making false promises. You give more money to the church and God will give more money back to you. They're making false promises. They're lying, using the name of God to benefit themselves. They're clowns. And these are people who are rich. They have cars, they have houses. They are wealthy people. And they say to the church, I am wealthy because of my faithfulness. If you give more money to the church, then God will make you wealthy as well. They're clowns, they're frauds, 
horrible human beings. This impacts all churches because people kind of roll their eyes. Oh, now they're giving a church, you know, it's corrupt, and it's understandable. Giving patterns, and this is horrible, giving patterns match the spending patterns of churches. Pastors can whine and complain that the church gives 2 or 3% of their income to the church, but the church gives 2 or 3% of the income away to others. So it's all even, isn't it? Churches spend 97% of offering resources on their own internal church programs, 97%. A pastor can't whine about somebody giving 2 or 3% of their income to the church when the church is giving 2 or 3% of their income to help particularly those people in need. On average, churches spend 1% of their budget on local benevolence and 2% of their budget on global benevolence. This is terrible. And I'm telling you, this was Rancho 2004. And we had to wake up to this reality. And we had to change it hard. So in 2005, we started our impact program and launched dozens of impact ministries to help people locally and globally. 2009, when the Great Recession hit, we started the Community Mission of Hope. Countless local and global initiatives and partnerships have formed since then to help people in need, raising hundreds of thousands of dollars, mobilizing hundreds of thousands of dollars every single year outside the walls of the church. Last year, Rancho mobilized 23% of our resources outside the walls of the church. Rancho is not a perfect church, but in this, I will say we're on a good path. We're on a good path. And the vision is to mobilize $1 million a year to help people in need by 2020. I don't know if we're going to get this. This is a wild, wild vision. And like I said, we're a long way down this road, but the gap is still pretty significant. And what we're doing through Count Me In is going to help fill that gap for sure. I want to close with one passage. After Jesus just wiped out that temple courtyard, taking a whip and whipping out people and animals, overturning tables and screaming, this is a den of thieves, Jesus said this, destroy the temple and I will raise it up again in three days. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. Jesus said, I'm done with this temple. He destroyed the courtyard and about 40 years later, the whole thing was destroyed by Rome. But Jesus said, I'm done with this temple. I'm done with this whole religious system. I'm done with this whole nationalistic system. You know, the Israel as a nation didn't work to bring my heart forward. This temple priest religious law system didn't work to bring my heart forward for the poor. Jesus I'm, says, I'm done with this. This temple is going to be gone and it will be raised again in three days. What was raised on the third day? Jesus. The body of Christ raised on the third day. Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the new temple. We don't need a temple. Done, gone, destroyed, good. Jesus is the temple. His body was raised on the third day. Then he looks at us and he says, you, by the way, are the body of Christ. We were raised on that third day as well. A new community of people who placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the body of Christ was raised on the third day. The church was formed to advance the cause of Christ on this earth to seize the vision of the kingdom of heaven on earth, that everybody would be loved, everybody would have enough, and everyone would be free. Jesus gave his life for that cause, that everybody would know the love of the Father. Everyone would know the forgiveness of the Father. Everyone would know that God wants to see everyone rise in dignity to the vision that he has for every man, woman, and child on this earth. And we get to play a part in that.
We get to go back to our, our homes and we get to work our budgets and we get to say, what are we gonna do with count me in? We get to say, where am I gonna invest my time, my energy, my friendship? We get to have this determination, no more Eric's in elementary school. Where are the lonely kids, right? Where are the poor kids? How do we welcome everybody into this incredible community of love? That's a vision for all of us. It's an exciting one. You know, I guess count me in, right? Let's pray. God, we thank you and honor you today. You're a God of such compassion and mercy. And we confess, probably every one of us can confess that perhaps our heart isn't aligned with yours in preference for the poor. And there's a lot behind that. Could be politics, could be history, past experience, could be even some bias in our own lives. So God, we just submit ourselves to you and we yield ourselves to you right now. Would you teach us what your heart is for the poor? Would you show us by your word in the Old Testament, the promises of the Old Testament, your call to Israel in the Old Testament, by the life and ministry of Jesus and by the calling of your church today, would you help us to understand your heart for the poor and that we would mobilize resources and mobilize uh, talents and volunteer hours to see to it that the poor are not only taken care of, but there is a friendship that is developed. There is a, a camaraderie that's developed. We can learn from one another. We can live truly in community with one another as a family of faith. God, we have so much to learn. We have such a long way to go, but I pray that you would fuel this vision towards a world where everyone is loved, everyone has enough, and everyone is free, and use us to help along the way. In Christ's name we pray, amen.